We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there is more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fauna. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Today, we're going to talk about the future. Stress over it, wonder about it, or plan for it, but we will never be able to predict the future. Or can we? Today's special guest, McCormick's Director of Consumer Market Insight, Tom Cavers, tries to do just that by taking consumer experiences, actions, their past and their present, and predict what's next and why. Hi, Tom. How you doing, Corey? I'm good today. How are you, sir? Very good. Great to talk with you. You as well. Thank you for joining us. If, uh, for those of you who are tuning in, Tom is actually our first remote interview today. Tom is with our company out at McCormick in Maryland. Is that right, Tom? In Hunt Valley. That's correct. Awesome. Yeah. So why don't we go ahead and start in right away with your introduction? So Tom, let's talk about who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's great to, to be on the podcast today. So my name is Tom Cavers. My day job is Consumer and Market Insights, what's commonly known as market research. And I do that for the McCormick branded products here in North America. So our spices, our seasoning mix packets, our Grillmates brands. And as you were sort of hinting at at the beginning, I deal in consumer perceptions and behaviors on a day-to-day basis. I have a lot of nights and weekend jobs too. (laughs) I love my hobbies and I probably have too many of them. But one of them is definitely being a flavored geek. I really enjoy the psychology and the science that surround flavor and food. And so I'm really happy to be here today to talk with you about it. That's awesome. You know, they say, find something you love to do and get paid to do it. and You'll never work a day in your life. So it sounds like you're doing pretty good on that aspect, Tom. I'm trying. I'm trying. We all have our days. (laughs) So why don't you talk about, you know, tell us about your title, Director of Consumer Market Insights. What does that mean? and, And how did you get this job? How did you get to McCormick? Well, I'm going into my fifth year here with McCormick. And actually, I was a philosophy major in college, believe it or not, and later went on to get my MBA. I actually met my wife in my MBA program, by the way, and she actually works at McCormick too, a little side story. But I have about 20 years working in consumer products, and I actually worked in uh, both marketing and market research roles during this time. You know, I've, I've always had a passion for learning and a passion for understanding. And I think that comes from my philosophy background, if you will. And importantly, asking why, right? Peeling back the onion and trying to understand what's, what's driving a, a, an issue or a behavior with consumers. And I think that kind of curiosity and, and willingness to constantly ask why is something that most of us in the consumer and market insight field share, <laughs> right? So we're, we're very curious folks. And uh, we also ask hard questions. I really enjoy it. I've been doing this for a long time now and and really love my work. And uh, I love working in flavor in particular because it is a particularly interesting part of market research. Uh, And I think it's great, actually, that our two companies, Corey, found each other, if you will, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, for two ones, one's been great getting to know you guys as part of this. You're all a great group of people to work with. But two, I all think we think we all genuinely share a passion and curiosity about flavor, you know, and I see that in both our companies. So it's, it's a really good match. Hmm. I think therefore I taste, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> 
All right. So Tom, let's talk about the consumers for a start. What is flavor from a consumer perspective or a point of view? Well, great, great question. So look, from a consumer experience, taste and flavor go hand in hand, right? What we really think about is that we define flavor as the distinct perception of something when a consumer consumes it. We at McCormick and, and you guys at Fona too have done a lot of work of over the years digging into this kind this question. We work with scientists and universities. We do our own consumer research. We publish our own papers and, and research and studies. We're constantly updating our understanding of what is flavor and how do consumers relate to it, right? And what's exciting about what we've learned is just how limitless the possibilities are when it comes to consumers and flavor. If there's one takeaway that I want your listeners to have today, it's that there's so many ways to create flavor in the minds of consumers. And whether you're a product developer, a chef, or a marketer, you should feel empowered and excited by working in flavor because you have so many tools at your disposal. So let me get back down to earth here because <laughs> I, I just opened up a lot of opportunity and possibilities there. Before I talk about consumers and their perspective on flavors, let me talk a little bit about the technical understanding of flavor first. You guys did a great podcast uh, last year with uh, Dr. Bob Sobel, right, about what is flavor. And he talked about sensory science and how taste and flavor are distinct, right? Taste occurs on the taste buds of your tongue and flavor largely occurs through the nose, right? Which is picking up the volatile organic compounds from the food itself, right? And we use gas chromatography to measure those volatile compounds to create a new flavor, right? We do all these experiments to try and make sure that we're replicating a certain flavor in the right way. Well, look, this technical perspective on flavor is a very useful way of thinking about flavor, no doubt about it, right? Our job in the food industry is to sell products that consumers enjoy eating and drinking, and we need to be able to create and control those flavors so that consumers will buy them, no doubt about it. But if you look at flavor from a consumer perspective, the world gets a lot bigger. It gets a lot more complicated. As you guys said at the beginning of the podcast, or you said at the beginning of the podcast, Corey, Taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. That's a universal human truth. We've looked at this from a global perspective. It definitely is the number one thing. But what's tricky about this truth is that most consumers do not make a distinction between taste and flavor. You ask consumers, what is a flavor? Sometimes they'll answer you, you mean how something tastes? Frankly, from a consumer experience point of view, taste and flavor often go hand in hand. What we do know are three really important things about flavor, and this is from talking to consumers, from observing them, and from working with leading scientists in the field. Flavor is multisensorial. It's not just about the taste and smell. It uses all the senses. It's emotional, incredibly emotional, in fact. And I want to talk more about each of these things. And it's an experience. It's not just the food itself that has the flavor. It's an experience we go through in our minds over a course of time. So from a consumer and even a, a, I'd say human point of view, I mean, sometimes we use consumer, we're really just talking about humans, right? From a consumer point of view, what we define a flavor, we define it as the distinct perception of something when a consumer consumes it, <laughs> right? So that's really a more complex view of flavor than just taste or smell. But let me ask, are stronger memories made with food or when food is present? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, food plays a huge role in creating memories. So I think with regard to that view of flavor, you know, some people might bristle at such a broad view of flavor. I could see a product developer maybe thinking that, that it's too broad a, a view of flavor. And as a market researcher, I sympathize with them. Often the more variables you add to a study, the harder it is to get a clear answer, right? But I would argue that this broader view of flavor, and you're hinting at it with your question about emotion, Corey, I would argue that this broader view of flavor really opens doors to new ways of thinking about growth, right? Because it's multisensorial, right? Because flavor uses all the senses, you can use all of the senses to communicate about flavor. Because it's emotional, you can create strong bonds for your brand. And because it's an experience, right? You can reframe how you think about positioning flavor, right? You can think about building a, uh, an experience around the flavor itself, or actually building a flavor around an experience. So to answer your question about how emotional uh, flavor is and digging into that a little bit more, why do we say flavor is so emotional? Why, why does it create such a strong emotional bond with consumers? Well, you know, Dr. Sobel explained in your podcast earlier that our sense of smell goes directly to the limbic part of our brain, right? It's unfiltered. It goes right to the emotional part of the brain. But we've seen this emotional reaction with food show up in so many different ways in our research. Obviously, you saw at the beginning of the pandemic as people flocked to comfort food, right? We know about that as a, as a phenomenon that was happening out there. When we talk to consumers, uh, we often ask them about, you know, a favorite flavor and a favorite memory they have around a flavor. We can't tell you how many times people bring up a smell that reminded them of a particular moment, right? One of my favorites is a, a gentleman who talked about the smell of peanuts and how it reminded him of baseball games with his father, right? And that warm time he would have with them. Or we've spoken to Hispanic consumers about cooking. And, you know, a lot of Hispanic consumers who've moved to the U.S., and have resettled here. They want to recreate the flavors of their childhood. So they will call up their abuela in whatever country they're from to figure out exactly how do they get the flavor that they had when they were growing up. So it's incredibly emotional, our experience with food, and one that we see come up time and time again in our research. So Tom, you had hinted about wrapping a flavor in an experience or an experience in a flavor. Uh, can you expand on that for me? So... The experience of flavor is so fascinating. And because it's an experience, you can really reframe how you think about it. You know, you can build the experience around the flavor itself. And a great example of this, one that's a particular favorite of mine, is York Peppermint Patty, right? If you've ever seen those advertisements for York Peppermint Patty, when I bite into a York Peppermint Patty, I feel the sensation of X, right? Skiing on a mountaintop, yeah. <laughs> right. So... You can build a, an experience around a flavor, but the reverse is true as well. And, you know, sort of that old adage, could I just bottle that experience up? There's some truth in that. An example we have from McCormick that's, that I think is a good one is our Tabitha Brown Sunshine Seasoning. You know, we developed a seasoning around Tabitha Brown. She's a wonderful uh, social media influencer and very positive and energetic. We called them Sunshine Seasoning, right? <laughs> so... You can truly build an experience and a flavor from both ways, right? Not just the flavor itself, but also the other aspects of the experience that you want to create. So what are those other aspects? Well, we tend to think about experience and the experience of flavor in three big buckets. 
The first is the expectation that the consumer has, right? What are you expecting the flavor to be like? Obviously, that's going to be formed by not only what you've learned about that flavor in the past, right? But also what you've what you see in that very moment. So an example of what you've learned in the past, you've seen an advertisement that makes you think about a certain experience you're going to have and sets an expectation for it. Or in the moment, you might have an expectation based upon, say, the color of the food you're looking at. Say you're looking at a clear can of soda or clear glass of soda, you're not going to think that's going to taste like cola, right? <laughs> but it might be cola and you would have a hard time believing it was cola if you drank it and it was clear, right? So there's this whole thing about expectation that's really key to understanding that experience. The next part is the actual sensation you, you have while you're consuming the product, right? And that sensation is not only the taste and smell, as we've talked about, but it's all the other senses that are going on. It's the sound, it's the sight, it's the uh, touch, right? The crunch. And the other part of that is that it's also the emotion because flavor is going, as we talked about, directly to the brain, right? And directly to that part of the brain that regulates your emotions. So if you are remembering that smell of the baseball field when you're eating the peanuts, obviously that's going to trigger a certain emotional response in you, right? And then finally, the last part of the experience that we look at is the impression that the flavor leaves, right? So obviously you had an expectation, you have a certain sensation during that experience. Does it leave a good impression or a bad impression? How does that affect your future expectation for the product, right? So there's a lot to unpack in that, obviously. And that's, you know, the sensory scientists and our market research teams work very closely to unpack all of that. But it's a really, really rich space for product developers and for marketers to explore. I mean, as you're talking, Tom, I got to say, you know, you're, you're hitting all the major points in my head, too. You know, the, the smell of the baseball field and the peanuts. I mean, uh, I'm an <laughs> avid Red Sox fan, so it brings me right back to, you know, Fenway Park. And you live in Chicago? Oh, my God. Originally from Massachusetts. But yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, as you're just talking about it, I can hear it. Or when you're mentioning the colors of the cola, if it were clear, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, Crystal Pepsi and what happened there. Or mm -hmm. when they tried to release different colored ketchups and how that reacted. I mean, definitely all memories from, from my childhood at that point when you're mentioning those things. And, and those are just us talking. We're not sampling. We're not doing anything. So definitely some strong thoughts and emotions. But with all that in mind, Tom, you know, we, we've talked about the experience here. Are there, you know, the two other factors or are there more factors that are involved? And if so, is there one that's stronger than the others? So all of our experiences in life are filtered through two important lenses. The personality of the person, right, who is going through that experience, and then the context for that specific experience. And what we found, Corey, is that personality actually is a really big driver of, of how people perceive their flavor experiences or and or the kind of flavor experiences they seek out. What I would say to you is that there are certain flavor personality traits that tend to be very strong with people. Some examples. Some people are more adventurous about food and flavor, right? We find about 30% of people would say that they're adventurous and some about 10% would say they're more cautious. We find also uh, that some people have a very strong relationship with ethnic food, right? About 40% of the, of the U.S. These are all U.S. numbers that I'm using now just for your information. 
But obviously that's conditioned by what they grew up with, right? Um, if you grew up with a certain type of food, you may have a strong loyalty to it. We find that some people are very visually oriented, right? This is a big personality trait. Some people really like, you know, phone eats first, <laughs> right? What does that plate of food look like? But there's other things that can influence personality traits as well and how you perceive food. Health is a big one. And that obviously can change, when, especially when you go through a, a health situation, can change the types of food experiences you're going to seek out um, and the types of flavors you seek out. So, you know, we have found that personality explains a lot of the types of choices people make. But it's always important to keep in mind the context. Are you eating by yourself? <laughs> are you eating with others? Are you eating at a restaurant? Or are you eating at home? Are you in a rush? Or are you? Uh, do you have time? Right. Context can obviously play a huge role in the types of flavors and foods people choose. But you know, putting it all together, we often look at okay, who's the person that we are designing this product for? What's the context in which they're going to eat it? And then, what kind of experience makes sense for that person in that context? So if the answer to my question is personality is the biggest factor, then let's kind of dive into personality a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. Can you be genetically predisposed to like or dislike something? You know, it's, it's interesting. There's not as much science about this as you would expect. So certainly cilantro seems to be something out there that a lot of people <laughs> talk about tastes like soap, right? And they don't like cilantro, but there aren't many others as we understand it from talking with scientists in the field. That said, there is emerging science about how flavor preferences and food preferences develop as we grow, even starting in utero, right? Some, there's some promising new science that the types of uh, food that a mother eats while a child is in her womb can affect that child's taste in the future. So for example, perhaps spicy food. If the mother eats spicy food, maybe the child will be more open to and enjoy spicier foods in the future. We also know that childhood and the types of foods you eat in your childhood play an incredible role, all right, in development and, and, and how people, the types of foods that they get habituated to eating. And in fact, what's so interesting, Corey, we did a, a very large study recently where we asked people uh, about the last food they ate, the last occasion, what did you eat? And was it something you had been eating since childhood? Over 80% of people said it was something that they had been eating since childhood which is pretty fascinating. So our childhood can have a, a tremendous effect on us. I think there's also some, some science, uh, emerging psychology, if you will, psychological findings on young adult and how that your young adult period affects your choice of food. So a lot of tastes are formed between 18 and 25. It's a very social time in life and people are exploring, going off to college, moving into new cities, moving into new states and things of that sort. And so I think there's a lot of uh, flavor exploration that occurs that can then inform what you eat in the rest of your life. But it, it is, it is uh, pretty fascinating that there isn't, it, it doesn't seem to be that genetics is the main driver. It seems to be more, it's how you're brought up, what culture, who you spend your time with. Those seem to be the biggest drivers. And as you're mentioning, you know, you can count me in that percentage of, you know, people who had something uh, for breakfast this morning, more specifically, that they had throughout all their childhood. I had a sausage sandwich this morning because when I was a kid, you know, we'd go to basketball practice and then after basketball, we'd, you know, have a sausage, egg and cheese. So 
you know, I'm still doing that and I'm, you know, 39 years old. So, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it explains a lot why in some cultures, certain foods are accepted and others not right. Like Vegemite sandwich is huge down in Australia, but most people here in the U S wouldn't touch one with a 10 foot pole. Right. So there's a lot that it's explained by our back, our, you know, our cultural upbringing and, and what we've grown used to. And honestly, you know, I think our palates, uh, at least as a, when we start young, are a very blank canvas that, that, that can be influenced. Yeah, that was the when I went to Australia. That was the, like the major food I wanted to to try. I mean, there was. What do you think? I was okay with it. I, I was okay. <laughs> I wouldn't seek it out, but I was okay with it. Yeah. They say you should have it hot, and I was like, oh, I'll you know just try whatever you give to me, and I was okay with it. So, Tom, you had kind of touched on people who are more adventurous in their in their flavor tastings, like people mm-hmm. who seek out new tastes. For every positive, there's also, you know, there's got to be some kind of flip side. So mm-hmm. is, is there a flip side to an adventurous taste? You know, are there those out there who are more, you know, conservative in their tastes? And, and if so, you know, who are we looking for when it comes to, you know, deciding what flavors we want to push out to the market? Are we looking yeah. for those more adventurous people or are we looking for those more constrained? Right. Well, here's an interesting thing. Both adventurous consumers and average consumers are very habitual. We're all very habitual. We all have what's called a ro- what I call a rotation of flavors. About 40 to 50% of what we eat is a rotation that we get into a, a habit of choosing. And then we all have a selection of foods that we bring in to try as new foods as we go along. This is true of all consumers. So the important thing to think about with adventurous consumers versus the rest of the market, right? Adventurous consumers are about 30% of the market. So obviously they're going to try a wider variety of new things, but you can't ignore 70% of the market, obviously. And what's interesting is that we find that even non-adventurous consumers, if you will, the 70% of the market, even those consumers are trying lots of new things all the time. So obviously you can't afford to not be creating new foods for consumers, right? You can't ignore 70% of the market. And if you are designing for adventurous consumers, yes, you might be designing more exotic foods, more on-trend foods, more foods that are in early stages of adoption, right? At restaurants and things of that nature. But again, 70% of the market still wants to try new stuff all the time as well. <laughs> so we, we like to say adventurish, <laughs> create adventurish things for the rest of the market and really think carefully about that adventurous target where there might be overlap with the mainstream market as well. So Tom, we've really concentrated on kind of the personality of the taster person experiencing the flavor. We've talked about a little bit about the experience as well. I, I also like to consider outside factors, uh, context, you know, where you're eating, what you're doing. I I can go back in my mind to high school when like eating alone was taboo, which would affect how fast I would eat, when I would eat, where I would eat, all of that. In your expertise, like, let's talk about, you know, the the occasion. Like if you're eating alone, is that still, do you think that's still taboo? You know, in like high school settings or, I mean, it goes away as you get older, does it not? Great question, Corey. A large percentage of eating occasions are alone, right? 57% of the time, according to a study we did recently, people actually are eating alone. So, you know, maybe there's some stigma in high school with it, but the vast majority of the time, consumers are eating alone. Now, that varies a lot by the type of occasion, right? So breakfast, lunch, and snacking, obviously, those are times which 
tend to be eaten alone. I think it's something like in those, like over 60% of the time people are, are eating alone. Dinner is an occasion where the majority of the time consumers are eating together, right? That's about 64% of the time people are in a group when they have dinner. So perhaps there's a little bit of a stigma to eating alone for dinner sometimes, but you know, in general, there's a lot of eating that happens on our own. And that's just, that's just life. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. It just is what it is. Now, what is interesting that when we think about flavor, and we think about you know whether flavor is present or how prominent flavor is in a meal by yourself versus uh, with people. We found that people add more flavor when they're eating in a group than when they are eating alone, which is really interesting. So that's true of like spices, it's true of condiments, it's true of pepper. If you're eating in a group, you're more likely to be flavoring the foods. And I think that goes to the idea that when you're eating in group, it's more about the enjoyment and the, you know, having fun with others and sharing the experience together. When you're eating alone, it's probably a little more functional, right? There may be more convenience oriented. We've seen some other data too that shows that when you're eating alone, convenience is more important. So flavor certainly plays a big role in those social eating moments. Uh, importantly, uh, I think that's another reason why flavor is so emotional, right? It's so tied to those social experiences we have. And with those emotional experiences, does that influence decisions going forward? So if I have a certain experience or impression of a food while I'm eating alone, will I feel that going forward or will that change as my experiences change? Well, that's a great question. You know, people have, obviously, people form expectations in that experience, right? We talked about expectation and then a sensation and then an impression that it's left with you. And that impression can inform your future expectations. So certainly every eating experience forms an impression for the next one, right? And if it's colored with emotion during that experience and particularly a positive emotion, that's actually uh, going to stick with you very strongly, which is good. I think as humans, there's been a lot of research to show uh, that as humans, we tend to remember the positive experiences much more than the negative experiences, right? And we try to forget the negative experiences. So I think there's something to say that the positive social experiences around food are ones that we as humans like to remember and that we take forward with us. And I think, you know, sometimes when we eat alone, it's more functional and less memorable inherently because there's less emotion tied to it. That is definitely a, a counter way of thinking when it comes to flavor and other experiences. So for example, if you buy something off of Amazon from a specific vendor and it's late or slow or broken when it arrives, like you remember that negative experience. But every time I get, you know, my weekly delivery of cat food or whatever it is, that'd be a fat cat. I don't think anything of it when it goes smoothly. I don't think anything of it, but you know, with flavor, it seems to be much the opposite. I have a good experience. I want to have it again and again and again, because I remember it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. One area that we haven't unpacked completely uh, and understand, and I think this is true of, you know, sort of flavor science in general, if you will, is why are there some foods that people will eat the same exact food over and over and over again? Think about the flavor of coffee they have, or some people who have, always have oatmeal for breakfast, right? And then other foods, people want variety every night, like they can't have the same dinner every night, right? Or they have a different snack every time or a different dessert every time. 
And that's that's an interesting area that we don't have a lot of understanding for. I don't have a lot of understanding at this time about that. Uh, that I think is really interesting to to dig into. But I think you know, I think to your point, certain experiences leave stronger impressions than others. It doesn't necessarily, uh, and other experiences you know may may not have as much of an impression. Maybe more of a non neutral impression. So Tom, flavor. I mean, we mentioned it at the top of our introduction all the time, how flavor is more than just what it tastes like and what it involves. I, I understand that it's, you know, more than just my taste buds. It's multisensorial. What, what does that mean for us? I like to call flavor a whole brain experience, right? We know that taste and smell are huge components of it. And, and Dr. Silbel, great, you know, the great podcast on that just goes into detail about that. But we know that flavor uh, and the perception of it by consumers can be impacted by much more than taste and smell. You know, you think about sight, right? And think about the famous uh, example of New Coke, right? New Coke was uh, designed in blind taste tests and scored better than original Coke. Uh, And then they launched it. And when people saw the brand, they didn't like it anymore, right? So sight can play a huge role. But also hearing, this is really interesting. We don't think of sound too much with uh, flavor, but there was a really interesting experiment done by psychologists with wine. They set out eight bottles of wine on a table. They put a music station at each bottle and then asked people to go and listen to music, taste the wine while they were listening, and then write down what kind of wine they were drinking. And of course, at the end of everything, they revealed all the different people's all uh, different takes on what the different wines were, and they were all over the map, right? Uh, why was that? Well, that was because the music was different at each station. The wine was the same. They would have rock at one station, classic at another, et cetera. And so the sound changed people's perception of what flavor uh, they were eating. But you can even think about like touch as well, right? The crunchiness of a flavor or, or, or the spiciness of the food, which is actually touch, as you know, Corey, right? So touch can influence our perception of flavor as well. So it's truly multisensorial, which the takeaway here is if you're a product developer, you know, you should use all the senses to communicate flavor, right? You, you have an incredible blank canvas to work with here. It's not just about taste and smell. When I hear the thing about sound, I have to ask this question, you know, if I'm predisposed to a certain type of music and I, you know, walk in and, you know, I sit down there playing that music while I'm drinking that wine, I mean, that's going to, that's going to have an effect on, on the outcome or the numbers. Is that not? You know, I would assume it does because everyone has a different taste of music, just like we have different tastes in food, right? So if you don't like classical music and you had to rate or describe a wine, you probably would describe it in terms that you don't like, right? Maybe that's going to influence you that way. So I think that's a fair, uh, fair thing to say. Now, is that a big dynamic? I mean, I guess it depends how heavily you hate classical music, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it may vary with every person, but it's an interesting question. I do feel like classical wine does go, or classical music does go with good wine. It makes me feel very proper, very, you know, like I should be having a nice, a fine drink and wine suits that, that bill. Um, but that being said, uh, we've come to the end of our podcast. So let's go ahead and do what we always do. And that's Tom, I need three key takeaways, three things that we should leave our listeners with that you feel are the most important of our discussion today. Well, great. Thank you, Corey. This has been so much fun. And the three key takeaways I have for everyone, 
are first, know your consumer and your target context, right? Really think about who you're designing this product for and in what context they will use it. Because as we discussed, that's going to frame how they experience that flavor. Second, use all of the senses to create that flavor experience, right? It's not just taste and smell. Sight, sound, touch can all influence how people are experiencing the flavor. So if you're developing a product, think about what the color is, what the texture is, what the sound is when consumers eat it. All these things can play a role in how consumers perceive the flavor. And then finally, this is just really, I find this just really interesting to think about flavor as an experience. Think broadly about what that flavor experience can be. And remember, you can build the experience around the flavor or you can build a flavor around an experience. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. And of course, we always finish this up with our three off-the-cuff answer questions. Uh, feel free to take as much time as you want to think about these. Uh, my first question is, are you an adventurous eater? Uh, yes. Yeah, I like to try all kinds of do foods. I was not when I was a kid, not at all, but I am definitely an adventurous eater. I love trying new foods. There's nothing I won't try. And follow up to that, this isn't one of the three questions, but I have to know what changed. You know, for me, it was interesting as I went to college and opened my eyes to a bigger world. <laughs> that was my, my change. I'm one of these people who, you know, that was a critical life stage for me. Makes sense. Makes sense. So second question, we already, you kind of touched on this already. What meal could you eat every night? Would have no problem with that if you had to eat it every night for a week. Yes. It's so funny. I, I almost, uh, almost did this last week. <laughs> you know, I, I recently discovered how to do Mexican rice and beans the right way. And it's so good. It's as simple as cooking your rice and chicken stock with an onion and celery and, the, uh, you know, a, a jalapeno. It's so, so good. And then, you know, the beans is sort of a similar thing. And, Putting that on uh, together in a bowl with avocados and tomato and cheese and sour cream, a little cilantro on top. I had that for uh, dinner, I think two or three nights in a row. My wife's traveling, so that's part of the reason. But um, but I also had it for breakfast, Corey. So I fried oh. up an egg and put an egg on top of it. It was so good. So um, so yeah, I know I'm an adventurous eater, but it doesn't mean I'm not habitual. Yeah, and you know if. If you can reinvent it with an egg in the morning or whatever, I mean, more power to you. I mean, right. I got I got to ask you: Are you doing the the three rinse technique when you do your rice? You rinse it three times before you you prepare it. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, I yeah. don't know if it's three times. It's just like a lot of rinsing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's fair to say. That's fair. And then the measuring for the amount of water to rice is the knuckles on your finger. If, you, oh. if you've ever heard of that aspect. No, I haven't. That's a good one. I, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I caught that one and I was like, no way. And I tried it and, uh, you know, give it a try for yourself. Uh, okay. So last question here. What is your favorite flavor descriptor word? Oh, man. What is a word that you use when describing flavor the most? Oh man, that's a great question. Or just a fun word that you, you know, you like to use when, when talking about flavor. That's a great one, Corey. I'm no sommelier, <laughs> so I'm going to expose myself for having a, a very limited vocabulary about flavor, although we just talked for you know, about a, an hour about it. It's a simple word, rich. That word, to me, captures just some complexity about flavors that's sometimes there. 
and kind of a, a fu- fulfilling sensation that it gives you that you don't get from other flavors, right? It's very rich in the moment. It doesn't necessarily mean it's heavy. You know, we were just talking about that that rice and the Mexican rice. For me, that's actually a very rich dish, but it's not necessarily heavy. And it's just got so much body to it and so much uh, flavor and, and, and richness to it. And I think there's something when you have a good flavor, it just, it feels, it feels rich. What can I tell you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. sounds like it's a you know, rich, kind of like powerful, really, you know, a strong, a strong feeling when you taste it. But yeah, I get, that's a good descriptor word. I like that. Um, okay. Well, that's it for our Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette. And I'd like to thank our special guest, Tom Cavers, for joining us today. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you, Corey. And thanks to our listeners. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fauna is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>